Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Three hundred and fifty years ago this year and this month, a charter was given by the Crown to the Royal African Company of England. This did not mark the beginning of the slave trade. In 1562, Captain John Hawkins became the first known Englishman to include enslaved Africans in his cargo. But as today's guest writes in his book Freedom's Debt, the Royal African Company of England shipped more enslaved African women, men and children to the Americas than any other single institution during the entire period of the transatlantic slave trade, from its foundation in 1672 to the early 1720s, the African Company transported close to 150,000 enslaved Africans, mostly to the British Caribbean. Today's podcast explores the story of England's involvement in, and later dominance of, the transatlantic slave trade. And my guest is William Pettigrew, Professor of History at the University of Lancaster. He's written much about the transatlantic trade and enslaved peoples, the East India Company, and the relationship between corporations and the state in history. Among his books is the one I've already mentioned, Freedom's Debt, The Royal African Company and the Politics of the Atlantic Slave Trade, 1672-1752, published by the University of North Carolina Press in 2013. And Professor Petrigrew is currently leading a team to explore the legacies of the British slave trade, examining the structures and significance of British investment in the transatlantic slave trade. So I welcome him to talk about the Royal African Company. Well, it is a great treat to have a chance to speak to you about this topic you've worked so much on. And I've been reading lots of your work. And what we're going to talk about is fascinating. We are marking an anniversary, the anniversary of the charter given to the Royal African Company. But that wasn't the first entity to operate on the west coast of Africa, nor was it the first to trade in enslaved Africans. So Perhaps you can give us a bit of the background running up to the charter given to the Royal African Company. Of course, yeah. I mean, the first point to mention is the beginning of English involvement in the transatlantic trade and enslaved people, which is well known to start in the 1560s uh, with the Hawkins voyages. Interestingly, there's a sort of impasse for several decades before independent merchants, in other words, the merchants not operating uh, as part of a company, begin to develop a sort of persistent transatlantic trade in enslaved people. 
largely to supply the labour needs of Barbados once the sugar revolution has taken place. In other words, once sugar cultivation has happened and has become profitable on the island. There's quite a substantial trade in the 1640s and 50s via these independent merchants. But it's 1660 when a, if you like, state-backed corporate venture is established which is a direct sort of predecessor of the Royal African Company. And that company is known as the Company of Royal Adventurers Trading to Africa, chartered in 1660 and then sort of reinvented in 1663 and then repurposed and refreshed in 1672 as the Royal African Company. It's a separate charter, but it really is a continuation of those two predecessor institutions. And the charter gave the Royal African Company a monopoly. What did it mean to have a so-called legal monopoly on the transportation of human cargo? Well, a lot of the overseas trading companies had monopolies and the sort of limits geographically of where they could trade were prescribed in those charters. Of course, all sorts of assumptions were, were made about whether or not English people had the right to those areas of the world. But there they were. The monopoly is really there as a tool to encourage investment. You know, why would I risk my capital in the venture were it not for the understanding that I and this organisation and nobody else is going to have access to the sort of commercial upside? But in reality, the monopoly was difficult to enforce from day one. The companies had state backing. They often had the backing of the royal family and the monarchy. They often had the support, therefore, of things like the Royal Navy as it was developing around this time. So there were state mechanisms for ensuring the monopoly was upheld and protected. But because enforcement depended upon you know, intercepting independent merchants thousands of miles away from England, executing the English law in those areas proved very difficult. And you said it was a continuation of the company of royal adventurers. What were its powers and privileges? Did it have a broader remit than that previous company? Most important sort of constitutional power the Royal African Company had that its predecessors did not have and that no other trading company in fact had at this point in time was the right to erect admiralty courts. Admiralty courts were civil courts. They stood outside the common law tradition. They enabled you to intercept merchants overseas and try them on the spot, imprison them and seize their goods without the use of a jury trial. So they were quite controversial legal entities. But this was given to the Royal African Company. as It was the most high-tech enforcement mechanism you could imagine for upholding the monopoly of the company. As I said, so powerful was this entity that it created a lot of controversy and a lot of opposition. The East India Company sought the same powers and were given them in the 1680s. That's kind of a measure of how effective the vice admiralty power was. That's extraordinary, isn't it? Because that's the right of justice without trial, on top of which they can wage war and make peace and they have this right to enslave people. They are operating, much as the East India Company is, of course, practically as the country, as a jurisdiction in themselves. That was the understanding, yeah. I mean, what really concerned these companies when they operated overseas was the right to control their own people. Because again, if you turn up in a foreign jurisdiction, you can't assume that you can control your people in the way you want to in a different constitutional environment. The Mughal emperor or the various different rulers of West Africa would seek to manage your people in their own way. So they were always designed to be self-governing. Again, how enforceable that was varies enormously. So I think it's really important to draw a distinction between what the companies intended to do, what they're actually able to do on the ground. Lots of historians have slipped into the trap 
of reading the company's intentions as the reality of their operations overseas, and that's clearly a mistake. Yes, so it's the difference between prescription and description, but even the descriptive sources here probably are going to be boasting of their power and not telling the truth about ways in which that's been subverted. Yes, although if you're an on-the-spot manager of the company in West Africa, it's in your interest to play up your weakness because you might get additional constitutional powers given to you. So it is possible to get a real insight into the weakness of these entities overseas through the alliances that the people on the ground are forced to form and the request they put it back to London to have their powers extended or altered in some way. Was it totally unregulated by anything other than the company directors or governors themselves? There was state interest. I mean, if you understand that with the company of Royal Adventurers, we have the minute book of that company for the sort of second half of its life. And the Duke of York, who would become James II, is at pretty much every single meeting. And, you know, he's a phenomenally powerful person even before he becomes king. So what I've been able to do is to track the individuals who are members of this company on the days when they were at these meetings. What else were they doing? And it's fair to say they were, you know, simultaneously establishing the Royal Navy, simultaneously establishing the sort of modern Whitehall bureaucracy, simultaneously establishing the Royal Society. So this venture is not helpful to understand it as private. It really is a sort of public state body. It's not subject to regulation. It is the regulation. It is state power. So I suppose that's one reason why talk of people like Edward Colston and people mm. who were involved in the company is quite so contentious because this isn't just identifying a group of private individuals who are operating discrete from all the other activities of the country at the time. You're mm. saying that this is fundamentally the story of the creation of Britain and its governing institutions and its economic power and in every other way, these things are interlinked. Absolutely. And I think the Colston example really is an attempt to locate our historic connection to slavery in the private sector, where it doesn't really belong, if you understand the story of these companies, as you know, entities that really transgress the distinction between private and public, state and market. That distinction you know, wouldn't be upheld in the 17th century. And I think it's important to dissolve it in this context. But it's not accurate to suggest that these are private enterprises, that this is just the market operating. This is a willful, premeditated, state-managed enterprise. And just for the sake of clarity, the investors all knew where their money was going. Absolutely. Certainly the first group of investors were quite active in the company. And in any case, as I was saying before, those either in the court or in the city, you know, the merchants, there's 20 years of precedent here for them to relate to about the transatlantic slave trade. So the plantations in Barbados and later Jamaica were generating huge amounts of money. So people understood the source of those profits. So I've always maintained strongly that those people who signed documents purchasing shares in these organisations knew exactly what they were doing. And of course, over time, the details of what happened in the plantation, the details of what happened on the slave ships became more and more broadly understood. What was the justification for this trade in humans? The principal justification was that labour was required to keep the economies of the Caribbean going and that those people inhabiting what we would now call the west coast of Africa were peculiarly suited for that labour. And I describe that as the main justification, 
but all sorts of additional rationalizations were generated as this became subject to political debate. And these become quite bizarre from a 21st century perspective, including it became quite commonplace to describe the slave trade in philanthropic terms. That actually those people who were transported against their will to a completely different society, denied any form of payment, robbed of their identity you know, and subject to legal murder and rape, were actually being aided by this process. That actually Africa was understood by these same propagandists to be such an uncivilised place in their language that it was better for them to be operating on the plantation in West Africa. So there's all sorts of justifications developed for the unjustifiable, but the core justification is to solve the colony's problem of labour supply. I'm aware that justification of the benevolence of enslaving others was still being used in the 19th century, in the early 20th century, when it underpins Cyril Churchill's new book, says Mm -hmm. the film Gone with the Wind. I mean, Mm -hmm. it's something that has remained as this convenient fiction this delusion actually to justify what had happened. Yes. Something that seeded in the 17th century is very, very powerful as an idea. Yes. I mentioned the political process because it's through having to debate how this was done that these justifications were generated. And actually in generating these justifications, my view is that actually British identity itself was generated and therefore is a product of the need to justify a sort of universal access to the slave trade. The company resisted because it had this monopoly that you mentioned, and that was understood to be un-English. Every Englishman must have access to any kind of trade. It's kind of common law refrain. And so in building a case to have the African company's monopoly toppled, the idea of Englishness was kind of codified. That's absolutely fascinating. Let's come back to that. I just want to press a little bit more on this point. I read in one of your articles that slavery thrives when labour supplies are low, desire for profits is high, and a distinct people deemed culturally eligible for enslavement can be found. And I thought this was very curious because I've always understood, this is from my undergraduate days, so I may well be wrong, but that racism really became entrenched as a result of slavery rather than the other way around. And so it feels to me there's a question here about why Africans were deemed to be culturally eligible for enslavement. Well, the initial marker of cultural difference was religious. Slavery had been justifiable since the early Middle Ages on the understanding that Christians could enslave Muslims and vice versa. That's kind of broadened to Christians enslaving other heathen nations, not just Islamic people. So when you hear people talking about this idea of cultural justification, it's initially made with reference to their religion. So there's this formula that operates at the beginning of the slave trade that therefore, if you allow your slaves to be baptised then they should be manumitted. But of course that doesn't serve the broader commercial justification that I just mentioned about the need to solve this acute problem of labour supply. So that condition of justifying slavery, this idea of cultural difference, has to be mutated into race. I think race as we understand it is something that we would connect to scientific difference. And of course that's a post-Enlightenment idea. So it doesn't really fit for the late 17th century. But over the course of the 18th century, you begin to see the development and entrenchment of what we could now relate to as racial stereotypes. Let's also think about that politicisation of the trade that you mentioned. Because another fascinating point in your work is that you argue that the link between enslaved labour and the rhetoric of freedom is fundamental. Can you explain that? Well, the monopoly that the company has is sort of branded 
as the company has to justify itself in public as a kind of badge of slavery. That's the expression. Monopolies are the badges of a slavish people. The slavish people being the English who would put up with them, not enslaved by the monopoly, of course. And so a campaign is started to have the company's monopoly and the company itself destroyed. You know, if you're going to mount a campaign in public by the end of the 17th century, you're going to need a media campaign, you're going to need a parliamentary campaign, you're going to need a legal campaign, you're going to need the courts. And in each of those three settings, and they're quite well coordinated, often using some of the same personnel, the sort of technique, the campaign slogan is, we're going to free the slave trade. We're going to develop a deregulated slave trade to underpin the development of our transatlantic empire. That's absolutely explicit in all of those three settings for the debate. And it's, you know, from our perspective, it's kind of astonishing that nobody saw the irony at all. Or they did, and it's a massive case of cognitive dissonance. (laughs) It could be, but I suspect it wasn't. I think in order to understand how human beings were able to do what they did to other human beings in the context of slavery, we have to appreciate that one group of human beings didn't believe the other to be human at all. And then actually the way in which they developed the notion of freedom to enslave is really just the same as shipping any other kind of objects around the commercial system that the English were participating in. So cognitive dissonance, certainly by the second half of the 18th century, But the final years of the 17th and opening years of the 18th, I think we're talking here about one group of people not understanding the other to be human at all. Hi there, I'm Don Wildman, the host of the brand new podcast, American History Hit. Join me twice a week as I explore the past to help us understand the United States today. You'll hear how Codebreakers uncovered secret Japanese plans for the Battle of Midway. Visit Chief Poetin as he prepares for war with the British. See Walt Disney accuse his former colleagues of being communists. And uncover the hidden history that lies beneath Central Park. From pre-colonial America to independence, slavery to civil rights, the gold rush to the space race, I'll be speaking to leading experts to delve into America's past. New episodes dropping every Monday and Thursday. So join me on American History Hit, a podcast by History Hit. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. 
Let's talk a little bit about the trade itself. As you've mentioned, the creation of the Royal African Company doesn't mark the beginning of the trade in enslaved people, but you argue that the company elevated the scale of the English saving activity to an unprecedented level. Can you give us some sense of that? Yes. So despite the fact that when the company's monopoly was ended and the trade was, inverted commas, freed, that led to a 300% increase in the capacity of the trade. When was that? That happened from about 1689 to 1712. But that's not to diminish the contribution of the African company to the English participation in the slave trade because the Royal African Company and its predecessors shipped somewhere in the region of 170,000 human beings across a 25-30 year period. And that is the single largest contribution to the transatlantic slave trade from any European nation throughout the whole period of the trade. So it's the number one slave trading organization in that sense, even though it's criticized and demolished for not being able to satisfy the demand for enslaved labor. Adam Smith mentions these trading companies, including the African company, as examples of kind of bureaucratic, inefficient commerce that should never have been allowed to set up, that actually they just create vested interests that slow the British economy down. And that's always led historians to relate to the companies as you know, sort of economically impaired organisations, when in fact they were quite efficient and effective in doing what they wanted to do. The one exception to that, though, and this is really important, is the monopolies were meant to sort of gather together sort of commercial potency so that when you went to a far-flung corner of the world, you could impose prices on the people who wanted to buy your goods. And they always argued that if the monopolies were destroyed then the price of the goods that the English wanted to buy overseas would increase. And that's exactly what happened. It's a very unusual case of deregulating a market, in this case human beings, and the price of those commodities, in their view, increasing at the same time. Now the reason for that is, if you look at the opponents of the African company, You've got people on mainland North American colonies. The African company did a reasonable job of supplying Barbados and Jamaica, but it completely neglected Virginia, Maryland, and the Carolinas. So those planters want to see its monopoly ended so that more enslaved people can be transported there. That's one group. There's another group of provincial merchants, Liverpudlians, Bristolians, the beneficiaries of moving the slave trade's centre of gravity from London elsewhere. But the most important constituency, and the one that's almost never mentioned are the African vendors of the enslaved people themselves. Of course, they didn't want to have prices imposed on them. In fact, they arranged the trade on the west coast of Africa in such a way that they prevented one European organisation, a company or otherwise, from dominating any one port. In fact, they created free ports, the most famous of which is at Ouida in modern-day Benin, where the king systematically says, all people are welcome here to trade. And what happens then is if you've got competition, the price of what you're selling increases. So this is a way of bringing the African perspective back into our understanding of the trade, but also showing how addicted the English colonists were to the use of slave labour, how dependent they were, because they were willing to pay higher and higher prices as the trade developed. Normally a trade, you know, as it expands and it matures, the prices are coming down, like it does for tea or coffee or any of these other tropical commodities. But at the beginning of the 18th century, the price of human beings increases as the market expands. And you know, the A-level economics term is that the elasticity of the colonial demand for slave labour is inelastic. It doesn't respond to price. So addicted were they that they would pay any price to have enslaved people. You talk there about the African perspective. Of course, the perspective that it's almost impossible to regain 
is the perspective of those who were enslaved. From memory, I've read that maybe we have half a dozen autobiographical accounts of people who were enslaved. And I know there is lots of amazing scholarship going on. Stephanie Smallwood comes to mind and others who are doing incredible work to try and recapture that. What can we know about or from the huge numbers of African women and men and children who were purchased and branded and transported and tortured and killed and enslaved under the Royal African Company? More and more, there's been a tremendous effort and a successful effort to focus the history of the slave trade on those human beings tragically transported by it. We have the slave narratives themselves. This is a kind of separate genre of writing that comes out of Equiano's autobiography. These are hugely important attempts to understand what this experience was like. Other endeavours in this area have really been about documenting who these people actually were. What were their names? Where did they come from? Rebuilding their identity, going against the grain of a system that was meant to rob them of that. So simply locating, for example, Africans in Tudor England or Africans in Stuart London, or those who were clearly not held as slaves but were you know, servants in a more conventional English way. I think doing this without any access to the sort of evidence that these individuals left behind themselves is obviously very, very difficult. But that doesn't mean we shouldn't try. So I think a lot of the insight we have about what the lives of these people was like derives from those Europeans who were connected to their enslavement, who may wish to humanise, in the eyes of their readers, individuals who were concerned inhuman. And so when you begin to see the very first glimmers of criticism of the trade, it's often through making it clear who these people were, where they came from, the languages they spoke, and the human qualities that they, of course, had. So focusing the story there, as historians have done over the last 10 or 15 years, has been massively important. I imagine some of that evidence tells us about the actual experience of people who were enslaved. Can we talk about what precisely happened? Yeah, I mean, Equianus is the most famous account of that. And the European materials, including the archives of the African Company, which are mostly focused on Africa, give a lot of detail about this, you know, how human beings were purchased which goods were imported into Africa to encourage warfare between African states. Warfare, of course, encouraged greater supply because enslaved people tended to be captives in war. So shipping things like guns made commercial sense. So if you like, you can understand a little bit about the mechanics of this from the commercial strategies that were formulated in Britain and elsewhere in Europe and then implemented on the west coast of Africa. But again, apart from the slave narratives, that doesn't always give us a brilliant insight into how it was to be on the receiving end of these techniques of capturing. But I think it's important to stress that it wasn't really until the 18th century that Europeans were capturing Africans directly without the mediation of the African vendors' polities who developed significant profits, if you like, and wealth and power from participating in the trade themselves. You mentioned that after 1689, the trade increased greatly. Now, obviously, we know in 1688-89, we've got the so-called Glorious Revolution taking place, this change of monarchy. How is this related to this massive expansion of the trade? Well, because of the intimate connections between the Royal African Company and the Stuart Kings, Charles and James, it's the only trading company with that royal prefix. Those monarchs, put a lot of their power and credibility behind supporting the company's monopoly. When James abdicates, drops his seal in the Thames and leaves over to France, 
the company is quite vulnerable at that point. It's lost all the state backing. It's lost all of the powerful individuals. And meanwhile, you've got a chorus of opposition to the trade building since the Charter of the African Company had been written and signed. Quite a few merchants had had their cargoes intercepted in the Atlantic. They'd been imprisoned by the company in Cape Coast Castle. They'd had their goods taken away from them, and so they wanted their revenge. So as soon as they could, after James departed, and it happens you know, within weeks, they bring cases against the company in the Court of King's Bench, basically saying it's a contravention of my liberties as an English person. What happened to me, what the African company did to me, was un-English. And Chief Justice Holt upholds that view in the case of Nightingale versus Bridges. It says basically the Crown can charter an overseas trading company, but it can't give that company vice-admiralty enforcement powers. Those are illegal, unless those powers are established through statute which is what happens with the legislation to track down pirates very early in the 18th century. So this forces the African company to come into parliament to seek these powers and to seek a statutory basis for its charter and its enforcement power. And that's what leads to this 25-year public debate about how the slave trade should be managed, which in duration and intensity is a bit like the protracted public debate about abolition. During that period of time, we've got opponents to the Royal African Company. Do we have opponents to the slave trade itself? Very few. As I was saying earlier, the political process sort of forces people to see the issue in the round. It forces them to consider every aspect of this. Because MPs aren't always merchants, growing numbers of them are, but still they're quite a small minority. So they don't look at this issue just in commercial terms. What about this issue of baptism? What about ultimately the treatment of enslaved people? But nobody, at least in this phase of public development, apart from I think two exceptions, is thinking that this is not a trade that people should be participating in. It's not a trade that the parliament should be endorsing, never mind the English state supporting. So those voices of opposition and discontent are very, very isolated. So let's go back to that point you mentioned earlier then about the history of slavery being the history of identity, this forming of the identity of English or Britishness. Can you explain a bit more about that? I think if I can connect it back to that notion of which constituency is most powerful in rejecting the African company's monopoly, to my mind, of course, it's those constituencies on the west coast of Africa who don't want to have the prices imposed upon them. You know, the African company, it's very clear, having gone through the story of how the African company tries to impose itself and entrench itself in the West African realm, is very, very weak, is very limited in its ability to enforce its wishes and its commercial strategy there. So when the African company is subject to this public debate, if you like, the commercial reality has already been set. The monopoly is unenforceable. Even if the English had been able to buttress the African company's monopoly through a statute and establish its legality unequivocally, it wouldn't have been able to enforce that monopoly in West Africa. So this whole notion of sort of larding the opposition to the African company's monopoly with a sort of jingoistic fetishizing of English liberty is really a rationalization of African power over English aspiration, that somehow making it more nationalist is compensating for the fact that in reality the English company had very little power and the English had very little power over the slave trade in this very early stage. 
what are the ingredients of the English identity that are formed in this way? Well, there's all sorts. Not just the constitutional argument that, you know, the English subject should have the liberty to participate in trade. That's a kind of classic common law argument from earlier in the 17th century grafted onto this pro-slave trade lobby. You also have the very beginnings of a sort of Mandevillian argument in favour of free trade. So the companies existed to prevent individuals from managing trade. Why couldn't you let an individual participate in trade on his own overseas? Because individuals were naturally prone to committing fraud and would be greedy. They needed to be structured into organisations that could conduct trade in a way that was good for society as a whole, was virtuous. The great intellectual contract of the 18th century, as ultimately voiced by Adam Smith, is to say no. If you give individuals free reign to pursue their own acquisitive instincts, then the economy as a whole will grow and society as a whole will benefit. If you look carefully in the debates in favour of deregulating the slave trade, and it's the very first overseas trade to be deregulated in this way, you can see that the Smithian argument in favour of giving individuals what is called in one of the pamphlets, freeing their animal instincts to acquire things, to participate in trade, as a way to expanding the scale of the English economy, creating a bigger tax base to fight war against the French. These arguments are made for the first time in the context of the slave trade. So economic liberty and constitutional liberty of a particularly British kind are both either accelerated and expanded in this context or created in this context. If you think about definitions of Britishness that operate right through the 19th century, those two things are absolutely central to it. The great contract of Adam Smith and economic liberty feels particularly relevant in the days in which we're living. How do you think we should tell the story, the history of the trade and enslaved people today? How has it, you've touched on, but how should it now play a part in modern identity? I think that it's absolutely essential that we understand the extent to which the systematic violence and torture, murder of a group of people over hundreds of years, and that group of people being you know, millions large, what role that played in the development of Britain. Not just, there's been a fixation on economically, I understand that. It plays a very important part in developing the British economy. But also the part it plays in the development of British ideas, of British identity, the development of British institutions, the development of the British state, and the development of the British nation. Because the slave trade is quite an unusual example of capital flight from London to the rest of the country. Forgive me, but it's sort of a good example of levelling up to the provinces. That The company had fixated and fixed commercial opportunity on London. But what the opponents of the company wanted to do is to make sure the benefits of slavery were spread around the country. So you look at the great cities of the west of this country, Bristol in particular, Liverpool, these cities would not be the cities they are today at all. Lancaster is the same without this history. So we've got to understand beyond the commercial dynamics the significance of this. And I think the process of debating that openly in all its detail and subtlety, I suppose a crucial British value in and of itself, I would like to see you know, a full and frank constructive conversation about that. That's the way I think that this story is going. And I think over the past couple of years, that's hugely expanded in ways that are just massively important and valuable. How are you continuing to work on this today? 
So I lead a group of scholars working on writing biographies, mini biographies of all of the investors in the transatlantic slave trade. So you know, we define investors as those financially connected to this directly. So that includes the you know, slave traders, people investing in individual voyages, but also all the investors in the slave trading companies that we've been talking largely about today. 15,000 of them, and we will launch the data, I think, towards the end of 2024. And the website will have a page per individual, but it'll also enable you to connect individuals to one another. It'll show the networks between them. It'll map the data. It'll also enable you to search through the data according to the institutions these people were connected to, some of which are still going, some of which are not. So it's a relational database. I hope it will do a good job of showing the commercial significance of these individuals' connections to this trade, but also the political networks these people use to sustain the trade and the cultural products that many of them generated as a result of the wealth accumulated from this or other aspects of their commercial careers. I imagine that's going to be something of a bomb (laughs) when you launch the information. Yeah, I hope so. And, you know, I think that having participated in the debate a little bit myself over the last couple of years. I think it benefits from the underpinning of high-quality information, and that's what we're trying to do. Got to tell the truth. Mm. Well, hopefully this conversation is a small part of that. So thank you so much for making the time to talk to me. I recommend to people your book, Freedom's Debt, if they want to know more about this whole process. And we should watch this space in terms of thinking about how the conversation develops. Thank you very much for inviting me, Susie. And it's a really great opportunity for me to put some of these ideas to a different audience. So thank you very much. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more, with Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. History is full of extraordinary people, the Tudors being just a handful. In my latest film on History Hit, we meet Bess of Hardwick and go inside the incredible house that she built, a house that defines the elegance and grandeur of the Elizabethan age, a house fit for a woman who climbed to the top of the Tudor social ladder. To find out more about the life of Bess and many more fascinating figures from the past, sign up via the link in the description with the code TUDORS for an exclusive discount.